But was Jesus just a great human teacher? Absolutely not. The scripture plainly, it doesn't try to hide this fact, it plainly declares Jesus' deity. So I'll be reading Matthew 1, verses 23 to 25. Right, so just follow along in your head. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And let's read these last words together. And he called his name Jesus. You may now take your seats. Now, if someone were to come up to you and ask you, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? What would your response be? Many of us may instinctively respond by saying, oh, Jesus? He's the Savior. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. And that's a great answer to that question because that is the message that we have been given to propagate. That is the message that we have been entrusted to give to other people. But supposing that guy who came up to you to ask this question responds back and says, yeah, I know that he died for us. All the other Christians have told me that he died for me. I've heard that many times now. But tell me, who, what was Jesus like? Can you please describe your Savior to me in greater detail? Can you please describe Jesus in greater detail? Now, I hope that many of us wouldn't be stumped or be at a loss for words with such a question. We can talk for hours upon many things, but if we run speechless when we are asked to describe Jesus in greater detail, there's something wrong with our priorities. Besides his work on the cross, besides his sacrifice on the hill of Golgotha, how well can we describe Jesus Christ? Can you describe him in greater depth? Or is your knowledge of who Jesus is limited? Now, if I gave you a pen and a piece of paper, if I gave all the people here a pen and a piece of paper, and I asked all of you to write down as many things as you can about Jesus Christ, would you be able to fill up one page? Would you be able to fill up both sides of that page? Or would you quickly run out of things to say about our Savior? The average mind is capable of storing large amounts of data, large amounts of information. And I'm not talking about super geniuses or uh, extraordinary people. I'm talking about the average mind. Me and you, we can store a lot of data in our head. Many of us here today are very intelligent and well-versed when it comes to different topics. But what about spiritual things? Now, there's this show that I've been watching since I was about eight years old. I've been watching it since I'm 23 now, and it's still going on. 
And if someone were to ask me to tell the entire story from beginning to end and tell all the relevant details, tell all the relevant characters of this show, which has a thousand plus episodes, by the way, I would be able to recount the entire story. And this is just from an average guy. I can store this useless information and recall it at, a, at, at any moment. Some guys, they can recall sports stats all day. They can recall stats of players that no one has even heard about. You can tell them a year, and they can tell you the number one pick on that, of that year. History guys, history buffs, they remember a lot of major conflicts, a lot of minor wars that took place all over the world, and they are capable of storing this great information. And my point is, our brain can store a lot of data, a lot of information. And my charge is for all of us to use a good amount of our brain storage to not just learn about secular things, but to use a good chunk of our brain to learn more about Jesus, to know more about the Savior. Now, I started with this question of who is Jesus because of the rising number of misconceptions regarding our Savior. Now, there are a lot of social media apps these days, and it's so easy for someone to just grab their phone, set it up on a tripod, put uh, that light on them. It's so easy for people to set up and record themselves voicing their opinions and beliefs and to upload it online for thousands and millions of people to see. It's very easy. You don't have to be technologically uh, inclined to be able to upload a video on YouTube. And because people are so have this much access to share their beliefs, I've been exposed to more misconceptions about Jesus, more heresies about Jesus than ever before. I see so many show up on my newsfeed about people preaching a very false gospel. So that's why I ask, who is Jesus? Who is the, the biblical Jesus? Now the question is, do we need to defend Jesus? Does Jesus need us to defend his character? And the answer is certainly not. Why would an omnipotent God need defense from impotent humanity? Why would all-powerful God need to be defended by very weak humanity? And conversely, what can we do to God that can actually injure him and damage him? We can't. So in truth, we don't need, that Jesus doesn't need Christians to protect his name. No matter what people may say about his name, he will still be God. He's the great I am. So the reason why we choose to correct misconceptions, the reason why we choose to correct false beliefs about Jesus is not because he needs our protection, but because of two reasons. One is we need to help other individuals come to Christ. You know, a lot of people, they grow up being told the wrong things. Some people, when they, when they, uh, as kids, they're told that God is all wrath that God will judge you for every single small sin that you commit, and they grow up having this picture of God in their head. And so when they are of age to decide whether to follow or reject God, they reject Him because He, had, he was taught a wrong idea of God. So we correct those false misconceptions to help others come to Christ. But also, number two, to contend for the faith. We contend for the faith by explaining to others what God has really said in His Bible. 
So many people take the Bible and they twist it to fit their narrative. They don't actually preach what the Bible is, is, has written. They just preach whatever it is on their mind. So to contend for the faith, we must explain to others, to non-believers, what God truly said. And in doing these two things, we give glory to God. And that's why we defend against false misconceptions. So tonight, I wanted to address three very common misconceptions and false beliefs regarding Jesus' character. And I'll show you tonight from Scripture what the Bible truly teaches about Jesus in these three things, in hopes that you will use these things to reach other unsaved people. But before we begin, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you uh, remove the fatigue from me and give me the energy to preach your word. I pray that you help me re- preach your word with a meek spirit, a gentle spirit, with a loving spirit. I pray that I would preach exclusively your words and not mine. And I pray that you would speak to the hearts of the congregation and those listening online. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Now the first misconception very common, and I've been exp- seeing this more than actually the other two, but the misconception that Jesus is only love. That Jesus is only love. Now, this is a belief commonly held by progressive Christians. I don't know who here has heard of progressive Christians, but progressive Christians believe that Jesus, Jesus is one central attribute. His one defining attribute is his love. If you are not aware of progressive Christianity, their core motto is inclusiveness and acceptance. Inclusiveness and acceptance. And, you know, that's not a bad goal. That's actually quite noble. They want to include as much people as you can, but they compromise the truth in order to accomplish that goal. The slogan of progressive Christianity could be described as, come as you are, stay as you are, and leave the same way. There's no change in a progressive Christian's life. Progressive Christians deny a lot of key doctrines. They deny the inspiration of Scripture. They don't believe that the the Bible is the Word of God. They believe that it is a, a very profitable travel journal guide for life, but they don't believe that it comes from God. Number two, they deny the sin nature. They don't believe that humans are born with an inclination to sin, that they don't have this fleshly nature. They believe that people are born good. Number three, they deny Christ's virgin birth. They deny the Trinity, and they believe in pantheism, meaning that God is in everything. They call Christ's death unnecessary. Progressive Christians, they call Christ's death and his atonement on the cross as cosmic child abuse. They, 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 they argue, why would God send his son to die? Isn't that child abuse? And that's what they believe about the atonement, of the sacrifice of Jesus. They call it unnecessary. And they deny that Jesus was perfect. Progressive Christianity, as you can see, is not Christianity at all. They deny so many key attributes. But some things that they do believe are this. They believe in universalism, meaning Every man in the world, in the, in the history of the world, they believe will eventually get saved in the far future. They believe that LGBTQ relationships are not sinful in the eyes of God. They believe in pluralism, 
meaning that all religions lead to the same God. They believe that the Sikh faith, the Muslim faith, the Orthodox Jewish faith, and all the other faiths in the world will all lead to the one true God. That's pluralism. And their gospel is not Christ's death. Their gospel is addressing social justice issues. That's what they focus on. Universalism, LGBTQ relationships not being sinful, pluralism, addressing social justice issues, all of these false doctrines come from the fact that they choose only to see Jesus' love rather than seeing the entire picture of Jesus. Now, did Jesus display love to those that he ministered to? The answer is a resounding yes. You read the four Gospels and you can see that Christ's ministry was fueled by his love for others. He was moved with compassion. He healed the sick. He cast out the demons. He hung out with the sinners. He dined with the sinners because he loved them. The fact, the fact of the matter is, Jesus was a loving man. He died on the cross to prove how much he loved humanity. John 15, 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And Christ showed that he had that great love for all of humanity by laying his own life and dying on the cross for our sake. No one can question the fact that Jesus was incredibly loving and the most loving man in the entire history of the world. I'm not at all downplaying his love for us. In truth, Jesus' love for believers, for unsaved people, that is the most attractive aspect of Christianity. You compare our, our, our faith with the faith of others, and many other religions are very cold, one-sided relationships. They go in front of their statue, offering up incense, praying every single day at a certain time, hoping that their God hears them. We know that our God hears us, but in their side, it's cold and one-sided. So Jesus' love is an appealing aspect of Christianity. So how is this a misconception? How is this a misconception? It becomes a misconception when people single out Jesus' love and they throw away all of his other attributes. What I mean by this is declaring Jesus to be only loving excludes his holiness and excludes the fact that he is perfectly just. It paints an incomplete picture of Christ. To show this and illustrate this, if someone were to come up to me and say, hey Ivan, Adolf, have you ever thought of the fact that Adolf Hitler was such a great man? You, you, you realize that he was such a phenomenal leader? that was able to rally an entire country. Yeah, he was so charismatic that other countries bought in with his goal. You know, Adolf Hitler, he was so persistent. He kept going when things got tough. He, that guy was so ambitious, extremely ambitious, incredibly tactical, incredibly intelligent, 
and was one of the, the person that is credited for starting the Audubon. What a great man Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler was. And he would come up to me and say that to me. And I would probably look at him dumbfounded. Is this man who is praising Adolf as we speak, is he talking about the same Hitler that I know of? Adolf Hitler, who killed over 6 million Jews through his horrific concentration camps? The same Hitler who encouraged his scientists to perform cruel experimentation on live human beings, children? The same Hitler who ordered the disabled, the elderly, the injured to be killed off because they were considered useless. You're telling me that Hitler is a great man? No. To accurately see what kind of man Hitler was, you need to see everything that made, him, that made up Hitler. You can't just focus on his positive attributes and ignore all the rest. Because if you look at Hitler as a whole, he was a horrible man. For character analysis to be accurate, you cannot single one attribute and throw away all the others. You must review the person's character fully. And in the case of Jesus, we can't just focus on his love and throw away his holiness and throw away the fact that he has a just character. Jesus was not only loving, but he was perfectly holy. Meaning that even though he loved sinners, even though he loved us, he does not love sin. He hates sin because he is holy. Yes, Jesus ate with the sinners. Yes, he ate with the publicans who had the worst reputation in society at that time. But never does it say in the Bible once that Jesus condoned their actions. In fact, the opposite is true. Everywhere that Jesus went, what did he preach? He preached a message of repentance to turn away from your sinful actions, to turn away from your sinful living, and to follow a righteous life. He preached that everywhere he went. We see this specifically. Let's turn to John chapter 8 together. John chapter 8. We see this specifically in this story. And we know the gist of this story. We have an adulterous woman. Somehow or other, she was caught in the act by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees dragged her from the place that she sinned from. And they brought her, they brought her in front of Jesus, in Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees were hoping, were, were, were wishing that Jesus would rebuke this woman for her sin. That's what they were hoping for. But we know how it ends. They all end up believing because Jesus tells them that they are all sinners. And not, not one of them is innocent and blameless. But look up with me in John chapter 8, 10 to 11. At the conclusion of this story, it says, When Jesus had lifted, him, lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? The Pharisees. Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. And read with me this next few words. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Did Jesus pick up a stone? 
and condemn the woman? No, because he is merciful and he is loving. But did Jesus condone her sin? No, because he is holy and he is just. You have to take all of Jesus' attribute in view. Jesus told that woman, that adulteress, to go and sin no more. He didn't say, oh, your adultery, your adulterous act was A-OK in my book. Keep doing what you're doing. He didn't say that. Jesus said, go and sin no more. Because maybe next time, I won't be around. Maybe next time, the Pharisees will just outright stone you and kill you. Go and sin no more. He didn't condone and tolerate her actions. Christ was also not afraid to criticize other people. Now this one's a shaky, uh, shaky fact here. Progressive Christians and even some other Christians in other denominations believe that it is inappropriate, that it is very unloving to criticize people's negative behavior. But Jesus, what do we see when he interacted with the Pharisees? He criticized the Pharisees' actions regularly. In Matthew 23, he pronounces eight woes upon the Pharisees. In other passages in the gospel, he calls them the generation of vipers. And he was not afraid to call out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Jesus criticized negative behaviors. The reason why he did so was because of his holiness. His holiness moved him to point out and denounce sins. My point with this is, when we come to Christ, there needs to be a change in our inward thinking and in our outward actions. There needs to be a change internally and externally. Now, the beauty of the gospel is this. Anybody can come to Christ. No no matter what gender, no matter what age, no matter what your upbringing was like, no matter what sins you committed in the past, guess what? The beauty of the gospel is we can come to Christ as we are can reach out to Jesus and accept that gift of salvation and he will give it to us. But because of the gospel's natural transformative power, there needs to be a change in our lives going forward. If we came to Jesus with all of these sins, sinful actions that we were committing, and we came to Jesus after walking with him and after accepting that gift of salvation, we shouldn't walk away the exact same way. When we accept Christ, our speech will change. Maybe you you struggled with saying God's name in vain. Maybe you struggled with cussing. When you accept Christ, those, those words should be removed from your vocabulary. Your diet will change. If you were uh, uh, an alcoholic and you were always consuming maybe marijuana or cigarette or just smoking cigs or doing whatever else, when you accept Christ, you shouldn't be entertaining those things anymore. You need to get rid of those things. When we are saved, how we talk to others will change. Maybe before you were saved, you were very toxic. You were very jealous. You were very envious of other people. You were always talking bad about other people. When you come to Christ, you shouldn't be talking bad about people still. You need to be a loving person. Our dress will change. How we, how we, what we wear will change. Our sources of entertainment will change. We can come to Christ just as we are, 
But we shouldn't stay that way. We ought to walk away as a new creature. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Many of you already know this verse by heart. Second Corinthians 5.17. And let's read this verse together out loud. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Old things are passed away. The sins that we entertained, the sins that we freely lived in, before we were saved, those things should all pass away when you accept Christ. There needs to be a change. Yes, Jesus is loving. Yes, Jesus accepts us just as we are. And, we are, and anybody can accept and go to God and ask for, for, ask for salvation. But after experiencing His love, after accepting His gift of salvation, there needs to be a change. He is perfectly holy and He does not want us to be entertaining sin he wants us to live righteous lives set apart from the world. So the first misconception is that Jesus was only love. And the second misconception was that Jesus made the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law useless. There's a misconception that Jesus made all of the Old Testament useless. There are some people who believe that the Old Testament is no longer necessary for Christians, for the modern-day believer. In fact, this is not a recent development. This traces back to 144 A.D. from a man named Marcion. Marcion believed that Christ's teachings were not compatible with God's actions in the Old Testament. So God's actions in the Old Testament are not compatible with Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. So therefore, he concluded that these are two different gods. So Marcion, what he did naturally is he rejected the Old Testament. He threw it away. He said, that, was, that is not the God that I serve. That is a completely different God. And he threw away the Old Testament. And he included only really Paul's epistles. This belief of rejecting the Old Testament started with Marcion, but it didn't end with him. Because this today, modern day, people still reject the Old Testament. People still say that the Old Testament is useless or not beneficial at all for a modern-day believer. People are saying that Christ destroyed the law, and so it serves no purpose at all in our life. Throw it away. Throw away the Old Testament is what they cry out. Now, before you go home, take an axe and a cleaver and chop off the Old Testament from your Bible. Consider what the Bible says on this specific matter. The gospel's relation to the law is one of the most significant discussions in the New Testament, actually. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's see if Jesus really came to destroy the law, to make the Old Testament useless. In Matthew 5, 17 to 18, it reads, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be 
fulfilled. Now, there's the quick answer, folks. It's, it writes it explicitly on that, in that passage, right from the mouth of Jesus, that he did not come to destroy the Mosaic law, nor the writings of the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. Fulfill them, what does that mean? Well, before I explain how Christ fulfilled the law, we need to understand the purpose of the law first. Because a lot of people, they get a misunderstanding of the, the law because they don't understand its purpose. They don't understand what, why God introduced it. The first reason why the law was given was in Galatians 3.24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the first reason why the law was given was to point the Jews to Jesus, their coming Messiah. The second reason why the law was given was found in Romans 7.7. 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. The second reason why the law was given was to identify sinful actions. The Jews had no clue what was actually wrong. They needed to be told what is wrong in the sight of God. So they were given a whole bunch of rules to tell them that information. The third reason, 1 Timothy 1, 8-10, it says, But we know that the law is good. Paul is calling the law good. can't be useless. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The third reason why the law was given to the Jews was that it restrained sin. If there were no rules in, 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 in Israel, guess what? There would, be so many, there, so, there would be so much more atrocities being committed. You can see the same thing in society. If you took out all of the, the rules that we have in Canada, people would run crazy. If there was no repercussion for stabbing a guy, guess what? People would naturally stab other people that mess with them. People would steal freely. Why would, why would you pay for something if there were no rules for thievery, for theft? People would just freely grab things from the counter without paying for them. If there are no rules, sin will abound. The law was given to restrain that sin. The law pointed the Jews to Jesus. The law identified sin. And the law restrained sin. The law was incredibly important at that time because Israel was inclined to sin. They were always messing up in the, in, the, in the simplest terms. They needed to be told on what to do, on what was right. The, the main goal of the law, of the Mosaic law, was this, was to help the Israelites love God with all their heart. All the laws were centered around that one goal, to help the Israelites love God with all their heart. And so Christ fulfilled the law, number one, by obeying it perfectly. Some people argue that Christ broke some of the laws, like he didn't respect the Sabbath day. People say, oh, he, he broke the law. That wasn't the case. He obeyed the law perfectly. For if he had broken the law, he would not be able to offer himself up. He fulfilled the law by fulfilling all of its prophecies. All of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, he fulfilled it, and it came to pass, and it was fact, it was real life. 
And he fulfilled the law lastly by introducing grace. We no longer live under the law. And we're, I'm, I'm thankful for that. If you sin at that time, you would need to kill off a lamb. You had a sin offering. I don't know about you. I just can't imagine killing, an, like killing a lamb, especially how they do it. I have a pet, I have a dog, and imagining me trying to give up that dog because you know something very special to you, very, very hard for me to imagine. And they were always killing off animals and giving sacrifice to atone for their sins. We, don't, we no longer live under that law. We live under grace. Christ fulfilled the law. The law helped identify and restrain sin, but when we accept Christ, when we have the Holy Spirit living in us, guess what? One of the Holy Spirit's job is to help us identify sin. The Holy Spirit's job is to help us gain power to defend against temptations. The Holy Spirit will allow us to also love others naturally. That is how Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't destroy it. The Old Testament is still incredibly precious. It is not destroyed. Don't let anybody tell you that the Old Testament is destroyed or useless because we need it as much as we need the New Testament. Many Christians will not outright reject the Old Testament, but many subconsciously think less of the Old Testament. You can see this. Maybe in our devotions, how many of your devotions are spent in the Old Testament? A lot of times we go from Matthew to Revelation, and instead of going back to Genesis to Malachi, we go back to Matthew again, and we completely skip over the Old Testament. We need to think highly of God's entire word, Old and New Testament. An author once said, the Old Testament contains the detailed theology of what Jesus came to do. If we want to know the thoughts, if we want to know the heart of Jesus, we will study those writings, the Old Testament, that filled his mind and soul. Do you want to know Jesus to a better extent? You must read the Old Testament. Don't throw it away. Don't ignore it. Don't neglect it. When you're trying to get to know a person, as maybe as a friend or as, maybe as a significant other, when you're trying to get to know a person, we tend to ask them always about their past. Not necessarily because we want to judge them. You know, we want to judge them and make fun of them for what they did in the past. No. We ask them about their past mainly so that we can understand where they are coming from. When someone is able to describe their upbringing and their history, they're able to explain their core memories, you start to understand why they operate the way they do. You get a more, by understanding the past of an individual, you get a fuller understanding of why they are the way they are. And similarly, if you only look at the present, the Gospels, as our information for knowing Jesus more, then we'll never get a complete picture of them. You need to go back to the Old Testament, look at the types and symbols of Jesus and how they reflected his future ministry. You look at all the prophecies that describe Jesus in greater detail. Only then will you get a clearer picture of Christ. And the last point I have will be brief. It is the misconception that Jesus was only a great moral teacher. The misconception that Jesus was only a great moral teacher. The point is brief, not because it is less important than the previous points, but because there's an overwhelming amount of evidence 
to refute this belief. This misconception believes that Jesus was only ever a great teacher. It asserts that he was not the Messiah that was being prophesied in the Old Testament. It asserts that he was not the Son of God. It asserts that he definitely was in God himself. They believe that Jesus was only ever a great moral teacher and 100% human. Muslims. Muslims actually respect Jesus highly. They think highly of Jesus. But they only believe him as one of God's beloved prophets, equal to Abraham, equal to Muhammad. They believe that he was just a man, a great man, but just a man. Unlike Muslims, the Orthodox Jews, they don't even respect Jesus. Orthodox Jews see Jesus as a man that was a stumbling block to other Jews that caused many Jews to err from the faith. That's how they view Jesus. They view him as a heretical teacher. Definitely not God. In the Baha'i faith, Jesus is considered a manifestation of God, similar to maybe um, Muhammad. Is all, they consider him as a manifestation of God. They believe that he was a man that only reflected the divine attributes of God. But he was not God. Sikhs. They respect and acknowledge Jesus as being a high-ranked holy man. They believe that Jesus was as close as a man can get to being perfect. But at the end of the day, they still believe that he was just a man. There are agnostics and atheists who acknowledge the existence of a man named Jesus in history, but they don't believe that that man was God. They believe he exists, but not that he was the Son of God. Now, what would be the repercussions of this? If Jesus was only a man and not God, if he was only a man and not God, he wouldn't be able to live a perfect life. From his birth, he already, he already failed. Because if he was just a man and not God, he would inherit the sin nature that we all inherited. He would have been a sinner from the start. And Jesus, because he would be Destined to be imperfect because he was just a man, he would not be able to offer himself up to pay for our sins. And because he is only a man, his death on the cross, his sacrifice, would lack the power to save all humanity because he's just another man. And lastly, if Jesus was just a man, then there is no hope for all of us. If he was just a man guess what? There is no hope for humans ever being reconciled with God. If Jesus was just a man, we would be forever separated from our Creator. But was Jesus just a great human teacher? Absolutely not. The Scripture plainly, it doesn't try to hide this fact, it plainly declares Jesus' deity. I'm just going to rapid fire these, these verses, which are just but a few evidences. In John 1.1 1, 1 and 1.14, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. 
And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word was Jesus. And it, that verse clearly declares that Jesus was here before the beginning of time and that He is God. Titus 2.13, no longer a theme verse, but Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. It plainly declares the fact that He is God. Isaiah 9.6, going back to the Old Testament, a prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, What's the next two names? The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Even in the Old Testament, His deity was being declared. In John 20, 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. All these godly disciples recognized the deity of Jesus Christ. He was not just a mere man. The people closest to Him knew that He was God Himself. Colossians 1, 16, For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. If he was just a regular man, then how did he have the power to create all things? He's shown to be omnipotent. Luke 7, 47 to 48, it says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven. A mere man does not have the power to forgive the sins of other people. Only a divine being can completely forgive the sins of another. And John 10.30, from Jesus' mouth himself, I and my Father are one. You know, this is just a portion of Scripture that describes Jesus' deity. If I used all the verses that describe His deity, it would be pages. It could make up an entire, entirely new sermon series even. Jesus was not just a mere man. J. Oswald Sanders, known for his Christian literature, once said, if Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship Him are nothing more than idolaters. Conversely, if he is God, those who say he was merely a good man or even the best of men are all blasphemers. More serious still, if Jesus claims to be God and is not God, then he is a blasphemer in the fullest sense of the word. If Jesus is not God, he is not even good. Folks, there are really only two options that you can believe today. Either Jesus Christ is God, is who he says he is in the scripture, or Jesus Christ was a madman who believed he was God. If, he, if Jesus was not God, he was just a delusional man. If not delusional, then a liar that is not worthy of being, a, being called a good moral teacher. Either Jesus Christ is God, or he was a madman or a liar. And I choose this day to believe that He was the Son of God, that He is God. A mere man wouldn't be able to cast out demons. A mere man wouldn't be able to heal people from sicknesses that doctors couldn't even heal. 
Jesus Christ is God. So who is Jesus? This sermon just addressed three misconceptions, common misconceptions that people have about Jesus. But there's still so much we can learn about our Savior. I urge you to make this question, who is Jesus, a priority in your life? When you read the Bible in the morning, when you're reading the text, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, ask yourself, who is Jesus? What can I learn about my Savior from the text that I'm reading? Commit yourself to learning more about him every day. And last verse, I'll ask you to turn and I'm done. Philippians 3.10. And I believe, Brother Lance, that this is the theme of UBC Bible Club too, right? Philippians 3.10, may I ask everybody to read this verse with me. Just the first part. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That I may know him. There's an important phrase in that verse. That I may know him. Like the hymn that we sing often, more about Jesus. Let us strive to learn more about our Lord and Savior. We spend a lot of our storage, our brain storage and brain activity learning about other things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Can't we spare a little bit of our brain storage to learn more about Jesus? To learn, about, learn more about the man who saved us, who loves us unconditionally, who's always giving to us. Let us learn to know more about Jesus and keep learning different ways to answer this one important question. Who is Jesus? Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.